Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to AOA. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day. We hope you're having a good one. Lots to talk about today. We'll talk markets with Arlen Suderman, and we'll talk about the economy as well. Arlen, of course, uh, Chief Commodities Economist for Stone X. We're also going to talk with Veronica Nye, Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, something we talked about a little bit about yesterday. We want to get more details on this proposal for a carbon border tax what would that mean for agriculture we'll talk about that and we'll get another crop report we'll go to the state of nebraska today talk with greg anderson he uh, grows all soybeans there in the eastern part of nebraska we'll see what conditions look like on his farm but let's start it off with the ag labor issue a hearing was held in the senate judiciary committee this week on ag labor joining us now from the national pork producers council their manager of competition labor and tax jack dedevo jack thanks for joining us what is the pork industry's message to congress when it comes to ag labor yeah absolutely thank you for having me um you know our message is pretty simple right you know there's only one visa program that exists right now for non-specialized labor and it has a seasonality requirement. This is of course the H2A program. You know, all the livestock industry, ours, you know, part of being part of that um, has no access as a result. Our work is year-round and we do not have access to it as a result. And so our ask is pretty simple. We want Congress to change the H2A program so that um, we have you know, a, a, a way for non-seasonal employers to get access to it, but also to do so without any kind of cap. Um, that's That's been our big ask to Congress thus far. And what kind of reception did that message receive? Well, pretty good. Um, you know, I think everybody agrees that, you know, or at least most people agree that the system as it works right now, um, H-2A as it works right now, does not uh, work, you know, frankly put. Um, you know, there's, I think, diverging opinions about what about it is broken, but I think just about everybody agrees that changes are necessary. Um, when we roll out, you know, the, the, you know, the message that, hey, you know, we need access to a visa program of our own, people are largely receptive. I mean, it's, you know, I think very apparent that there is a, a worker shortage, not just for our industry, but for most of ag and most of the economy at this point. Um, you know, any of our producers will tell you that our shortage has lasted since long before the pandemic, um, and we need to have something to access workers. Um, you know, our data, especially the data from Iowa State, suggests that we simply do not have the workforce domestically, and so a solution is going to need to come through visa reform. It seems like every time we get into these discussions, somebody throws out the word amnesty and everything falls apart as far as reform. Think it'll be any different this time? Well, there certainly was some talk about that uh, yesterday about whether or not um, Title I of the provision, the uh, Certified Agricultural Worker Program, uh, constitutes amnesty. Um, you know, there, there is, you know, I think, a significant debate on whether or not that's true. Um, but, you know, for us... You know, while that is a very important piece of it and something that, you know, as, as of now we do, we do like, our, our focus definitely is more on the H-2A side. 
um, you know, CAW and that, that program, you know, while, while good, doesn't do a whole lot um, in terms of the numbers to address the shortage, while H-2A does. And reform there would actually bring, you know, jobs over. Um, though we do understand that everybody has their own priorities, and if we're going to make immigration reform work, it is going to require some compromise. This has been so frustrating because this is this is a hugely e- emotional and uh, hotly debated issue, and it seems like because we can't come to a consensus on everything when it comes to immigration, we fail to do anything. In this case, a particular area that needs to be addressed when it comes to ag labor. Uh, explain again, Jack, uh, why this is important to everyone. Uh, some people might think, that, well, that's just an ag issue, but it's really an issue that infects, impacts everyone, right? Absolutely. You know, um, and, you know, to address your first point, you're totally right. I mean, there's a reason that it's been, you know, I think over 35 years at this point since any reforms have come to the H-2A program. It is difficult. You know, there's no getting around that. But you're right. There is there's something for everybody um, in terms of what's necessary. You know, for our industry, for producers, you know, the tasks are simple. We just need uh, the labor. We need we need workers really badly. Um, you know, for the labor side, I think there's a lot of concerns about, you know, what access looks like um, for packers. They want to know that they have a, a steady access to to product, and producers want to and, and sorry, consumers rather want to make sure that they're getting the best prices um, as a result of the best efficiency in their ag system. And so, you know, this is this is something that up you know impacts everybody up and down the supply chain. Um, and I think that's why everybody's you know so invested is that the stakes are high, and we're hoping that you know those that investment will lead to a solution, you know, this Congress. So it impacts food supply and food price, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, so right now, um, this is, you know, some anecdotal information, but, you know, depending on what size operation um, you have in the hog industry, we're hearing from some of our producers that that, that shortage can rain from like the, the less the less uh, labor-intensive side, somewhere around the 10 to 15% range to a lot of the more labor-intensive side, the 25 to 30% range. Um, and, you know, what that does is it does have an impact on the efficiency of our farms. You know, we're not operating at the, the peak levels that we could be. And then beyond that, expansion is out of the question. So when we look at prices downstream, if we, if we can't increase the overall supply, prices both domestically and to what we sell will go up and that's something you know we we you know want to try to see if we can we can change by increasing the the output of our industry via labor reform well there's uh we know there's some strong opposition some saying that uh extending citizenship uh well senator lindsey graham said would result in a run on the border what's your response to that so, you know, I haven't seen any data su- to suggest that, you know, a CAW-type program would um, result in that. But, you know, with the H-2A side of it, right, if you can increase the opportunities there, um, you know, expand access and availability, we can pair, their, you know, documented, well-paying jobs and opportunities with the needs of farmers. And so we might be able to kind of get two birds with one stone um, with the H-2A side of it. Um, though, with Senator Graham's comments, I, I, I don't know if I have a comment on that. Yeah, it just seems like, obviously, we have a, a, a very serious situation at the border that needs to be addressed. But it, we should be able to do both, I would think, uh, 
address that and address the uh, the ag labor issue. And but seemingly so far they've not been able to do either one, let alone both. So we'll see what happens there. All right, Jack, thanks a lot. And what's the next step in this? Where do we go from here? Next step is looking at the Senate. You know, so we have the you know FWMA that passed the House. Um, we're waiting on um, you know, language in the Senate. Um, that might be FWMA or something otherwise to be introduced that we can start working on, find some consensus, and hopefully pass something we can send back to the House that includes the, the needed reforms for, for the hog industry. All right, we'll see what happens with the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, an important issue for agriculture and for the country. Jack Dedevo with the National Pork Producers Council. Thanks, Jack. Thank you. Up next, we'll take a look at this proposal for a carbon border tax. What would that mean for agriculture? We'll talk about it next here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Each and every day, DTN and progressive farmer editors are posting unique, original content to their website at DTNPF.com bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crops, cattle, equipment technology, and more. You'll find innovative topics like, would you plant soybeans in December? Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, the CEO of RCAF USA, Bill Bullard. Bill, the other issue that this administration is taking on, and USDA is going to have this investigation and seeking information on what to do with meat labels. Are you encouraged by what you're hearing and seeing so far from USDA on this? Well, we're certainly pleased that USDA is now interested in doing this. But the problem is, is the problem that USDA is addressing, and that is that uh, currently the government allows imported beef products to be unpackaged and repackaged and then USDA label placed on it. The reason that problem exists is because when Congress repealed the mandatory country of origin labeling law, they also repealed the provision that said all foreign meat passing through U.S. Customs and Border Protection must retain its foreign label through retail sale. So the real solution here is again Congress. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility. Independence changes your entire life. 
So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Senate Democrats are proposing a tariff on carbon-intensive imports as a way to raise revenue for spending packages. But critics say, especially those in agriculture, are saying this would drive up farm production costs. Let's talk about it with Veronica Nye, an economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Veronica, thank you for joining us. So uh, what are your thoughts? How do you analyze this uh, so-called carbon border tax? What would it mean for agriculture? That's a question, and I think there's a lot more, speaking of questions, there's more questions about how this would be implemented at this point than there are answers. So um, certainly we're thinking about it from the impact it could potentially have on inputs, things like uh, fertilizers, uh, machinery, uh, things along that lines, uh, how much that would drive up the cost of, of those inputs for farmers. But then there's also the, um, the idea that uh, international trade rules matter and uh, that we make sure we're not in, um, that we're in compliance with those. And there's a lot of questions about how this would be implemented in a way that would keep us in compliance with international trade rules. Yeah, it would seem that uh, it would it would raise a lot of red flags with with our trading partners. You know, certainly, I will note that the U.S. Um, just within the last two months raised concerns um, publicly about the fact that the EU is planning to do something similar. The difference is that in the EU they have explicit taxes on carbon. Um, and so it's easier to compare um, and to price carbon, uh, from other countries than it is in the U.S., where thankfully we don't have a carbon tax, but we know that we have uh, a lot of you know, regulatory issues uh, or uh, programs in place to try to reduce the carbon footprint from, from farmers and ranchers and the rest of the economy. But those regulations are much, much harder to determine the total cost of. And so when you're, when other countries are looking at our program and to say, um, well, is this tax that you're charging me comparable to what you're doing? It's a lot harder to measure that uh, than it is when you're looking at an explicit tax like the EU has. So let's look at some ways it could it could impact. You mentioned fertilizer. I mean, it could really increase the cost of fertilizer, right? And we're talking about steel and aluminum. Um, those prices could go up because of this as well. Absolutely. So, you know, if you think about where um, fertilizer is coming from, um, you know, you think about Russia, the Morocco, um, UAE, the UAE, uh, the Ukraine, and think about those countries and their environmental uh, policies compared to the U.S., it would be much of a stretch <laughs> to assume that uh, there will be a tax 
uh, on fertilizer coming from those countries. So um, certainly what we know about uh, taxes is whether they're import taxes or, um, or domestically applied taxes, is that those costs end up getting passed on to uh, the end consumer. And in this situation, that's, that's the farmers. So um, I think that the example of what happened with the additional tariffs on steel and aluminum that were put on in the last several years and what that has done to steel and aluminum prices in the U.S. Um, gives us a very clear uh, idea of how this would be applied. And um, those taxes were passed on to uh, farmers and, and the rest of the U.S. economy who uses steel and aluminum. Um, and there's no reason to believe that these additional taxes due to carbon wouldn't also be passed on um, to uh, folks that are the final purchasers of those products. Yeah, we've seen those costs go up, and this would probably, it would seem, make them go even higher. We're talking with Farm Bureau economist Veronica Nye. Now, you've also uh, uh, expressed a concern about if this were implemented, this U.S. border tax, it could cause uh, Congress to have to come back and take action down the line that could also cause problems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the at, at the back of my brain, as we're talking about the fact that the U.S., in order to, uh, our, our carbon policy relies on regulatory actions, which are much less uh, clear as to how those are um, measured, right? Like, for, from one operation, from one industry to another, the costs are going to be different. So, you know, uh, thinking about this from a trade perspective, other countries are going to look at that and say, hey, um, I'm not sure that you are <laughs> paying as much as, as we are um, in this uh, tax. And therefore, you know, I think uh, I'm interested in a WTO dispute. Or if it's Canada or Mexico, um, where we have USMCA, they could take up a case directly through USMCA. Similar for our other trading partners with whom we have trade agreements. Uh, they could take up cases uh, through the respective uh, FTAs, not just the WTO. So it, certainly there's a lot of question there as to how that would be viewed. Um, and then, you know, at the, at the very back of my brain, um, thinking um, Congress says, you know, you're right. That is challenging to compare. You know what? I think the U.S. needs a carbon tax. So, it, so that we're um, very clear as to the cost. Um, and to, to more easily compare it to to our uh, our trading partners. So that's not what they're talking about today. Let me be clear. They're not talking about initiating a carbon tax in the um, but it's not a challenging path to uh, mentally show down to envision a scenario where we add a carbon tax in the us in order to uh, avoid some of the uh, the trade issues and to make it more easy to compare what's going on in the U.S. to what's going on in other countries. Yeah, a, a, you could call it a border tariff now, but could easily lead to, opens the possibility up to a carbon tax later on, right? Um, absolutely. Um, and, you know, a, a tariff is a tax with, by just a, a different name. So um, I think it's important that folks remember that um, in, the, in, you know, in the short run, as we're thinking about the potential of uh, adding a tariff um, to those imports, uh, that just means a tax for you. 
And then, uh, you know, a little bit further down the road, um, we could look at look at, at turning those regulatory actions into uh, tax. Um, so there's there's a lot to to sort of think about here. We we certainly um, appreciate and the the fact that Congress is thinking about this in this from the standpoint of we know farmers and ranchers and the rest of the youth economy are doing a lot in order to um, lessen their environmental footprint. And other countries are not doing the same thing. So we certainly appreciate that observation and acknowledgement. Um, but how it goes into effect is um, uh, is something to keep a close eye on uh, because it has implications from from a cost perspective for us as as inputs, and also you know a few steps down the road from a policy perspective. There's there's certainly things to keep an eye on. Yeah, it's one thing to say, well, this would help help us make uh, China address their emissions uh, problems. Uh, but as the European Union found out, when China started threatening to cancel purchases uh, of different things, U- European Union backed down pretty quickly. And I got a feeling that there would be, uh, well, we saw what happened just with tariffs on China, right? It was very controversial. So you you got to be ready if you're going to go down that road. Uh, are you going to be able to stick with it? Exactly. And, you know, Mike, I would I would mention that uh, you know, we're still operating under the phase one agreement um, that goes until the end of the 2021 calendar year. Um, but the purchase commitments under phase one, of course, expire at the end of 2021. But the tariffs that are in place do not um, cancel at the end of the year. So those are those on the U.S. side and the Chinese side. They're uh, the, the tariffs are are still in in effect and will continue into effect. So um, the Chinese have a decent amount of leverage, to be honest. Um, when uh, mm-hmm. you know, we all remember how devastating those tariffs were when they were not accompanied by purchases. Right? We went down to exports of uh, of less than ten billion dollars when previous to the tariff actions, uh, we had exports of about twenty five billion. So it, it's big bite out of U.S. ag exports when there were tariffs but no purchase agreements. So, you know, we're looking at only less than six months and we're going to be in a scenario where we don't have those purchase agreements in place unless this administration, um, you know, starts negotiating that soon. Yeah, a lot of uh, things to consider here. Veronica, thank you very much. Thanks for the perspective. My pleasure. Thank you. American Farm Bureau Federation economist Veronica Nye. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. 
In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rall. Crop markets are continuing their trend lower from overnight trade. The U.S. weather forecast is calling for continued hot and dry conditions during a critical development time for corn and soybeans. The Black Sea wheat and feed grains are being pulled down, as is corn for Brazil. On the Board of Trade September corn, trading nine and a half cent lower at 562 and a fraction. The December contract down 10 and a fraction at 558 and a fraction of a cent. For soybeans, the August contract down 29 and three quarters at 14.09 and a half cent. The September contract down 31 and a half cent at 13.66 and a fraction of a cent. For wheat, Chicago wheat September down 17 and a half cent at 6.93 and a fraction. Kansas City wheat September down 16 and a half cent at 6.52 and a fraction. Minneapolis spring wheat September down 12 at 8.85 and three quarters. The December contract down 11 at 8.76 and a fraction of a cent. Livestock futures are positioning themselves ahead of the USDA's cattle on feed report on Friday. Ahead of the report, the average trade estimate for July 1st on feed is down 1% from last year. June placements are expected to be down 4.1% with marketings up 2.1%. USDA will also issue a cattle inventory report on Friday. For August live cattle on the Board of Trade, trading 67 cents higher at 120.72, the October contract up 60 at 125.85. For feeders, August up a dollar seven at one fifty seven eighty five. September up a dollar two at one sixty thirty seven. In lean hogs, the August contract trading twenty cents lower at one oh six thirty seven. The October contract down sixty seven at ninety one seventy two. In the outside markets, the Dow is up 234 points, the NASDAQ composite up 70, the S&P 500 up 24 crude oil in New York, the September contract up $2.33 at $69.53 per barrel, the U.S. dollar index is trending lower. You're listening to AOA. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, always look forward to our conversations with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for Stone X. Arlen, good to talk with you. What are traders most focused on? Are they 
we often talk about the markets usually assume there's going to be a big crop until they're proven. Uh, are they taking seriously these weather concerns in many parts of the growing area of the Midwest, or are they still assuming? Yeah, they're. Uh, I think probably the best start off with remember this is not the markets they used to be where the buyers and sellers were in the trading pits. And based on the news headlines that were going across the screen reflecting weather concerns and production issues and demand uh, news that they would uh, call out and signal with their hands and they would discover the price. Uh, it's still a price discovery mechanism, but it's driven by computers. With computers uh, doing by far the overwhelming majority of the trades without human intervention. And so that amplifies the moves and creates a little bit more erratic movement. So when we see the forecasts uh, start to turn a little bit uh, more moderate in temperatures with more rain chances in the 11 to 15 day today, uh, it's not a drop of two or three cents, but it's a drop of a dime in corn and 30 some cents in soybeans. Uh, the big price swings are the big things. Weather and crop ratings are probably the top issue right now. There's certainly a lot of other news headlines and stuff, but the big driver right now is what is the size of the U.S. corn and soybean crops? And it's really wrestling how to balance out the problems in the West, really the West, Northwestern 25% of the belt where the problems are most concentrated with the relatively good crops across the rest of the Midwest. How does that all balance out? And this is kind of what we anticipated as we went through July that this would happen. And then as we get into August, we should get more data and it should be easier for the trade to really see how they all balance out the good and the bad. You brought up an interesting point that I guess I hadn't thought that much about. The, the move to more computers and not having that face-to-face uh, -face interaction, even though it seemed from the outside uh, those trading pits seemed like utter chaos, uh, if you got down and looked more closely, you could see the, the method to what looked like a madness, and you could see that interaction and the communication that was going on. And the markets are reacting differently, you point out, uh, without that 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 same human that face-to-face -face contact that we used to have and now it's shifted more to computers uh, talk a little bit more about how that has changed things well most of the computers follow programming i mean they're just doing what they're programmed to do and then we've looked at a lot of the programs for a lot of the computers of the momentum indicators, momentum trading, computers, etc. that trade as momentum switches one way or the other. And then there are other computers that operate on just reading headlines and making buy or sell decisions on headlines. And some of them are mixed too. But the, the programs all have similarities to them. So you get this herd mentality where they're behaving in similar ways. Now they each think they've got the secret sauce to make their slightly more efficient at price discovering the rest, but there's still enough similarities to it that it becomes a certain mentality. And then when you put that together with the expanded position limits that we put in in March so that the, the institutions behind the individual computer have larger positions with more money behind those positions, you can really amplify the moves, which is why we said in February, expect big price swings in both directions throughout this growing season, and that's exactly the way it's played out largely because of that combination of computers working with a lot of money and larger position limits.
If you are a farmer looking out at your fields right now and see a pretty good prospect for a, for a good crop, in some cases maybe a very good crop, and you're hearing these other problems in other parts of the, uh, the Midwest, the out west, and the, the, we know the tight stocks, uh, other than if you needed money right now for something, uh, what would be your incentive to sell now? Wouldn't it, it, it aren't we kind of leaning towards, uh, let's wait, let's be patient because these prices uh, more than likely are going up? Yeah, and it really comes down to the individual farm situation. If you're highly leveraged, you obviously have to say, I've got an opportunity to lock in a guarantee that I'm going to be in business next year. You, you kind of do it. Uh, by the wayside of, I could get more, you just want to make sure you're going to be in business next year and solid. But if, if you're not leveraged very heavily at all, you got a little bit more opportunity to take risk, you're going to take a different approach to it. I think one of the things we forget about a lot is local basis. If you're in an area where the crops are looking good and uh, you're saying, man, I think these futures prices could go higher, but if these crops, local crops come in big, we could see a real collapse of our basis, our cash basis. That's going to move you toward making cash sales a little bit quicker, but the way you can handle that is, is there's a lot of over-the-counter products out there that a lot of grain buyers offer right now for a relatively low cost where you can keep the upside open while still locking in that basis, locking in that minimum cash value, so to speak. And I'd be taking a look at that. If you're in the northwestern Midwest where production is concerned, you've got to watch what are your insurance guarantees, how much production is, is covered by that. Be careful not to exceed that in what you've locked in. You have to have a little bit more flexibility in your marketing, what you're doing, because you want to make sure you've got the bushels to deliver on the contracts. Yeah, depends on each individual situation and, as you mentioned, a lot about geography, too. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with Stone X. What are you hearing about ethanol plants in places having trouble getting corn? Yeah, and it varies again where you're at. Um, we had our cash grain call within the company here this week, and uh, there are some areas of the eastern Midwest where grain is ample, and uh, processors are saying, you know, all I have to do is push my bid 10 cents, and I can get all the corn I need. And um, so then they'll push it 10 cents, get a slug of corn, and then their net bid drops from what it was previous to the push. Um, because they're getting amply supplied and we're getting close to the end of the year. Um, but as you get in other areas, and most notably those would be areas where production is at risk this year, where producers are more worried, what's the size of my crop going to be? If they have any bushels left over, they're more reluctant to sell those bushels. And so processors are having more trouble pulling those uh, bushels out of the tight hands of the farmer. So it really has to do to a great extent on what this year's crop looks like, which has a big impact on how willing the sellers of existing supplies are. Mm -hmm. uh, let's turn to China. Flooding going on there. How much uh, impact will that have on their production and uh, then, of course, uh, their import needs? You know, we have some areas that have had over a foot of rain here uh, over the last uh, few weeks. Oh, that's in the U.S. Midwest, and the crop is doing real well. We have some areas with some heavy flooding. We're seeing similar reports, and, and some of them are higher totals than that, but similar, most of them are similar reports from China, and all of a sudden everyone thinks China's crops are wiped out. 
what's really made the news and headlines to bias that thinking is there are uh, one city, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, in the province of Henan, uh, that had a year's worth of rain in just a few days a few days time and that's where a storm sat on top of the city uh, they believe it was because of the urban uh, heat type of a syndrome where the storm just sat over the city and dumped all this rain and they had copious amounts of rain and massive flooding but if you go a little bit outside of the city into rural areas they got it maybe a half inch um, in some places more so you have to keep it in perspective. There are parts of the Corn Belt that have had a lot of rain, but their crops are really in pretty good condition so far. I can tell you this, they still have the speculative community within the markets there in China. And if there was a belief that the crops were under serious threat, widespread risk, yes, locally I know there are some problems, but if the major producing areas are in widespread threat, they would be seeing higher corn prices. They're not. Their corn market, both the futures and the cash, are working their way lower. Our, our customers there on the ground are just kind of scoff at the concerns coming out of the United States about there being a major threat to their corn crop. Uh, now there's a typhoon moving in that may change things, but so far it's not a real big threat. So for now, anyway, we watch the weather forecasts and be ready for some uh, volatility in the markets to continue. Yeah, and I think the crop ratings in the next two weeks are really going to be key. How much do we start seeing the, the moisture in Iowa pull back? That will have a big impact on how the good and the bad balance out. Iowa is going to be very pivotal. How does it get through the next six weeks? Does it dry out like it did last year, or do we, does it get enough showers to continue to nurse that crop to where it does well? Yeah, I, we talk a lot about west and uh, maybe even some northern states like wisconsin and, and minnesota places there but iowa's still in play aren't they oh they really are and they were the epicenter of the soil moisture deficits prior to the rains of the last few weeks um, but their soil moisture levels are still relatively low especially in the northern two-thirds of the state so if they don't get some more rains here coming up over the next couple of weeks and the heat's a little bit more extensive, it could still swing either way depending on how that plays out with the high pressure ridge. Yeah, the story is still to be written. We'll see what happens with this as this uh, challenging crop year of 2021 continues. Thanks, Arlen. Good to talk with you. Thank you, Mike. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for Stone X. Well, we've been checking around with farmers in different parts of the country. Uh, yesterday, we were talking with uh, Kevin Skunas in North Dakota. Today, we're going to go to the state of Nebraska. We'll talk with Greg Anderson, see how things look on his farm. That's next here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, Go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. 
Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner too through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Progressive Farmer knows you need content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we've created our weekly podcast, Field Posts, to bring you convenient and easy-to-listen-to interviews on key topics and trends. Join me, Sarah Mock, as I interview some of agriculture's best thoughts. You'll have a front-row seat to learn what's happening in agriculture today. You can view our library of podcasts and upcoming topics by going to dtnpf.com backslash field posts. My name is William Yank. I'm a 23-year-old, three-time leukemia survivor. Leukemia and Lymphoma Society was this unforeseen blessing for me because I wouldn't have been able to get CAR-T cell therapy. Ways that I advocate for cancer is probably mostly through my podcast and my Instagram or TikTok. It's so vitally important that we have the Leukemia Lymphoma Society on our side. To give or get help, visit lls.org. Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, for the second month in a row, the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer decline, falling 21 points below a month earlier and the weakest sentiment reading since July of 2020. Here to talk about it is Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langmeyer. Michael, what's your takeaway from this? The index of current conditions and the index of future expectations fell but the index of current conditions fell much more steeply. And we think one of the reasons why the index fell so hard is if, if you look at when we surveyed people in mid-May and then the week of June 21st to 25th, both corn and soybean futures price fell dramatically. If you look at the, the soybean futures, we saw a drop of about $2.50, very large drop from mid-May to mid-June. There's the nearby corn futures dropped about $0.80. Cents. And so even though the prices are still relatively strong, certainly those those prices are weaker. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. 
When you're living with low vision, life can be a challenge. If you're 55 or older and your world has gotten smaller because of vision loss, it's time to be bold. Go to timetobebold.org for a list of services in your state that will give you the tools, technology, training, and support you need to live your bold, best life. Help is here. Join others who found a bright, bold future. Go to timetobebold.org today. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, our crop watch today takes us to the state of Nebraska, kind of northeastern Nebraska. We talk with Greg Anderson, soybean farmer there. Greg, how are you? Doing well, Mike. How are you today? Good, good. How are things looking on your farm? Well, look, things are looking really good at this point, Mike. Uh, we've had uh, good rains uh, throughout the months of June and early July. However, it hasn't rained for about a week. And I'm a little concerned about the heat coming in now here starting uh, tomorrow, and it looks like it might extend for the next uh, 7 to 10 days, uh, highs in the 90s. However, there are some rain opportunities over the weekend, so we hope we, we can pull in some moisture at that time. So we've got areas with too little rain, areas with too much rain. You feel you've been kind of uh, right in between. Kind of right in between, and it has been spotty. Uh, I ended up with the month of June, a little over five inches of rain, which is great. Uh, it pushed the crops along, um, had some, some good rains, a couple rains there in uh, the middle of uh, early to mid-July. And, uh, you know, the crops are really looking very good right now. The people who have corn, uh, that's kind of through the pollination stage. That went in through in good shape, uh, not extreme high temperatures. It had moisture. And, and a lot of people are uh, applying fungicide now to, to corn. I've seen some, some planes going, going around just about every day. Uh, looks like the soybeans, uh, probably at the end of next week, uh, reaching that R3 stage. So people will start applying fungicide to soybeans. And, and uh, as you know, uh, August is a critical month for the development mm -hmm. of, of, of soybeans, uh, the pods, and, and filling the pods. And so we'll see uh, how that uh, plays out for 2021. Yep, key time is coming up, but it sounds like you're going into it in pretty good shape. Any disease or insect pressures? I uh, have to remark about the insects. Uh, I had a university professor out on my farm here about 10 days ago, and we were looking for everything. You know, we were looking for, for diseases and insect pressure and things of that nature. Uh, just very minimal at this stage, and uh, uh, often I, when I apply fungicide, I'll throw an insecticide in, and there's just been, uh, you know, very little uh, insects to, to appear uh, at this at this point anyway. And we hear of uh, in the drier areas where the grasshoppers are, are ravaging fields, and I hear about the guys up in Montana and things like that. But but here, uh, right in this locale, uh, it's been uh, really good for both diseases and uh, for insects. So when you look at this crop here late July compared to past years, and again, you grow all soybeans, uh, how would you compare this crop to some years in the past that have been pretty good? Well, it, at this at this juncture, at this point in time, it's really setting up uh, nicely for, for a great crop, and that's, that's all contingent on what we have for the next six weeks, uh, five weeks anyway. Uh, you know, last year in 2020, uh, we were sitting about 
just like now. We were looking very good at the end of July, and then in August we just didn't get uh, hardly any rain. Mm-hmm. And we got a the big rain was I think the 31st of August, and so a little bit too late. It shaved uh, a lot of bushels off, of, especially those dryland fields and and even the irrigated fields. So just weren't uh, optimum uh, like we had thought in in the end of July. So. Yeah, it's it's critical. Uh, we'll we'll see what happens this year. I, I think there's a lot of optimism, especially with uh, you know a, a demand for our crops uh, has been good this year, and, and and of course the price structure is better than it was a year ago. So a lot of optimism out there, and everybody wants to bring a big crop home with these prices, and and we'll trust that it works out well for everybody. So as you said, you're going to need those more rain in August, but uh, your subsoil moisture is it in pretty good shape right now? Yeah, it is. You know, we've we've had. Uh, uh, I remember way back in March, we had six inches of rain, really recharged uh, the subsoil going into the spring, and then uh, rains right along have uh, have kept that. Uh, however, as I think about the crop watch uh, here, uh, soybeans are pulling about a quarter of an inch of, uh, of rain uh, or moisture per day, and uh, that will accelerate once the heat sets in, and and then you throw some some hot dry winds on top of that. Well, then. Uh, the moisture really is is important. So uh, I'm sure we're going to be using every drop of that uh, subsoil moisture to carry us through until we get some more rains, and and uh, hopefully that will uh, continue here in, in the next couple of weeks or so. It can change in a hurry, can it? You go from feeling pretty good about it one day, and all of a sudden a week later you're saying, wow, we're, we're really needing some rain. So it, it can change that quickly. Uh, so you've been able to avoid, so far, the really hot weather. Yes, we had some uh, warm weather in, in June. There's a, a couple of days where it got above 100, and then it kind of uh, went more seasonal. Actually, in July, we've had uh, more uh, below-normal temperature, uh, high temperatures, if that can make sense, uh, than we have had above. So it's been, I wouldn't say a cool July, but it's been a seasonal July. It's been a July that has been uh, kind, especially for the corn pollination, development of crops. Uh, just amazing to see how quickly uh, the, the ear shoots out of the corn, and, and it's really neat to see these soybeans uh, gain some height and grow and, and look great. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where, uh, as, as we old-timers would say, we're about 10 days away from a drought and about a week away from from uh, the next rain so uh, those types of things can change like you said very quickly however uh, we'll, we'll we'll just keep uh, seeing how this develops and uh, look forward to, to the next crop update where I can maybe give you a, a better picture of just bringing this crop home. As you've talked with other farmers in the state of Nebraska outside of your immediate area what are you hearing about in other parts of your state? Yeah you know uh, the eastern I would say a fourth or a third of the state is probably the the part of the state that looks the best. Uh, of course, that's where the bulk of the corn and soybeans are grown. However, uh, the central parts of the, the state, even up to the north and in the northwest, uh, very important uh, crop production areas. Uh, it depends in the locale. Some have been blessed with you know some ample rains, and some are still looking for maybe uh, that rain that they haven't seen for three or four weeks. And so it does vary a lot. There is some variability. Uh, throughout the state. However, overall, I would say Nebraska in the crop ratings uh, is looking about as good as any place in the country. Um, of course, we have a lot of irrigation. About half the acres in the state are irrigated. However, uh, everybody knows we can't grow a crop solely on irrigation, and so uh, we need those uh, rain events to come through regularly to, uh, to keep everything moving along. We'll check back in with you next month and see how it's going. Okay, Greg? Great, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. 
Nebraska soybean farmer Greg Anderson. So this week we've checked in in Nebraska and in North Dakota and Kansas and Ohio. Tomorrow I'll be in Decatur, Illinois at the Farm Progress Show site. We'll have a Farm Progress Show preview plus an update on Illinois crop conditions. Hope you'll join us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.